I'd love for you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you have a church Bible, it's on page 1765, where we're going to be. I want to read to you about half of that chapter. And we're taking up the theme uh, that we began a few weeks back about our calling as a church of God to be as exiles in the world and what that means for us. I want to read to you then these first 12 verses of this chapter, and then we'll pick up this idea. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." We're asking this question in these weeks that we're thinking about this theme. What does it mean to be an exile? Or a refugee is another way you can understand. It's the same term. It's a term that's used in the New Testament to describe the church of God in its position on earth. That we are exiles, sojourners, aliens, refugees. And what does that mean for us? And I, I want to say that on the one hand, this is a deeply theological issue. It goes right to the heart of what you think about yourself, who you think you are, your identity, your sense of identity. And identity is a powerful thing. I remember some years back seeing a, um, a documentary which was showing you what happens at boot camp when um, men are... are um, join the U.S. Marines and how one of the first things that, they, that happens to them is they get their hair shaved off. And you think, what is that about? And the answer, it seems to me, is about stripping away their old identity. Now, could you imagine Jeremy Moses without his beautiful head of hair? It, he'd be less of a man, wouldn't he? And he's stripping away the old identity so that they can then 
they can then build in a new sense of who they are in order to train them for the purpose to which those men have given their life and uh, to become elite soldiers. And there's a sense in which as you understand in these weeks what it means to be in exile, it will change the way you think, which changes your sense of who you are and has implications. But it's not just a theological issue. It's also a deeply practical issue. And just to give you one example of why I think that's the case, you know, many of us can experience in life the compelling desire and drive to feel a sense of belonging in this world or of acceptance or of proving ourselves, of, of that drive, that inner drive to make something of your life in the here and now, which is because of the desire to belong to the system in which we live. And when you begin to understand that you're in exile that actually your homeland is somewhere else, and that you live for a God who is over all of this. Your inner desires and motives and drives change. It has, a, it has an effect on your daily experience of life, of your emotions, of what drives you. So this is a profoundly, and I would say a foundational a profoundly important foundational thing to be thinking about. And I think I would go as far as to say this, that I think some of you will be experiencing something of a, a spiritual transformation as we explore this theme. It will change the way you understand your life and what you're here for. Now, one of the questions we need to wrestle with then, if the Bible says that God, in a sense, is our home and that we are here and that therefore we are exiles, the great question is why are we here? You know, why, why is it, you know, you could experience something of a sense of abandonment. Why, why is it that we're here and not where we should be? Why is it that we're not with the Lord? And that's actually a really important question. How Christians understand our purpose and our reason for being here affects enormously the way you understand the purpose and mission of the church and of your part in that. You know, some people think that we're basically just here hanging on for some kind of rescue. You've seen the images in the news of what happens when a, a great flood can sweep through a place and you'll see people climbing tall trees or standing on um, the roofs of houses because they're essentially stranded and helpless and awaiting rescue. And some people's view of the church is just like that. Here we are, we're just awaiting a kind of transportation to where we really belong. And I want to say to you that is not, it's absolutely not the takeaway from this idea of being exiles. And others think, well, okay, if we're not the ones awaiting rescue, we're the rescuers. We're the kind of the coast guard. We're the lifeboatmen who are just here desperately trying to rescue as many people as possible in this place that's passing away before eventually we're, we're, we end up where we're meant to be. And of course, there's, there's an element of truth in that, but that isn't the dominant idea in the Bible, I don't think. And rather, what this passage shows us, and it's a theme that... that that's all the way through the scriptures, and you, you pick it up. I want to particularly focus here on, on verses 4 and 5, which will just unlock the whole section for us. He says, As you come to him, this is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what he's telling us here, so God's plan and purpose for the world is not to merely discard it and just to pluck people out of it. But rather that God is 
at work in the world to build a structure that will change the world. And in particular, a temple. Now, this is something that you can trace all the way through the Bible. It begins in the garden. The Garden of Eden was a temple. It was a place where the presence of God was there on earth with man and woman, the high priest and priestess at the garden. And God said, have dominion on the planet. Turn the whole planet into this garden temple. They failed, of course. And then through successive generations, there are these inbreaking of physical temples where God's presence is on earth. Coming to the climax, of course, with the person of Jesus Christ, the embodiment of a temple. He's called the tabernacle in John 1. He, he came and tabernacled among us. The presence of God in physical form as a living, walking temple. And then when he ascends to heaven, the church is called the temple. And at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you have the image of the, the great city descending to earth and the earth becoming the temple of God. Now here's what I'm wanting you to understand, friends. The Bible tells us that God's intention and plan is to fill the earth with his glory. Habakkuk 2 says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture where it describes the journey of the Lord Jesus Christ who descended from his place with the Father to earth, taking on flesh, and humbled himself further by going to the cross. And then God's, God's great pleasure to elevate him to a position of glory. It ends that section where Paul says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything, in other words ultimately is about the glory of the Son and about God's intention to reunite all of creation in its purpose of worshiping the Son, which means that He is not done with this earth, but that rather His presence is invading the earth Breaking in, there's an inbreaking of the presence of God to make the earth the habitation, the home, the dwelling place of the glory of God through his people, the church. The church is a temple, and you are part of that. I know that sometimes that can be hard to believe for the simple reason that the church is a deeply unimpressive institution at times. Subject to criticism from the inside and from the outside. With many failings that all of us can see. But I think that you can think of it like the story of Noah. How Noah was at work for, probably for decades, building this great wooden boat in the middle of nowhere nowhere near the sea, misunderstood by all who looked on at what he was doing, but knowing that ultimately that boat was the salvation of the world. That's like the church. You can look on and think, well, it's not up to much. Many of you have grown up in church and you've been hurt by church and you've been wounded by it and you've been turned off by church. 
Some of you think, I, I like Jesus, I'm not so sure about his people. But the Bible says, ah, now don't you understand, this is God's purpose. This is his intention. The church is where God's presence dwells. And God is coming. He's coming in and through his people. Now, this is wonderfully and beautifully practical. And I want to show you a few implications that come out from this idea. Let me give you the first. It means, first of all, that your life, your life must be built upon Jesus, upon Christ, the cornerstone. We sing it. Maybe we don't know what it means when we sing it. I want to explain it. This is where, this is where Christianity and the culture in which we live violently and emphatically conflict and disagree. Because we have grown up in a world in which we, we are told that you get to define your own identity. You get to define your own truth even. And the universe must bend to what you believe is right. Particularly your self-expression, who you think you are. And the Bible says, no, that's absolutely and utterly wrong. It's rubbish. The Bible says instead, as he says here, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, the foundational aspect of reality upon which all of life is built, including your sense of what is true or not true in your identity, the most fundamental truth is that Christ is the cornerstone. So instead of us believing that, that, that we are meant to present ourselves to a world and be accepted so that the whole universe bends to who we say we are, the very reverse is true. The Bible says, no, here is Christ. Now build your life upon him. Now, obviously, there's an element of choice in that. And Peter's really frank about this. He says, you know, there's two options. That it's possible that you, you can build your life without reference to Christ. And he says quite candidly, because he was there, remember, he saw how people reacted to Jesus and he'd been a preacher by this point for decades. He knew how people reacted to the message of Jesus. He says, listen, not everybody gets it. And that might be the position you're in. He puts it like this. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by man. The image seems to be, you know, I've been to, um, I've been to, I've seen some of the remains of the Jerusalem temple that was constructed around the time of Herod, uh, the second temple. And there are great, enormous stones that lay at the foundation of that thing. One of them is as, is as long as this room is wide, this great stone that must have been dug out of a quarry. And I mean, it's a miracle they got it there. But you can, the image seems to be that, you know, as, as all of us are like builders, we're building our lives. Every decision we make, what we understand truth to be, what we understand the purpose of life to be, all of this is a, a, a construction. We're building our lives. And as people survey the stones upon which they can build their reality, build their life, it's like they're surveying, they're seeing the stones come out the quarry and they're saying, nah, 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 not sure about that one. Don't believe that, that idea. Not sure about this. And people see Jesus and they're like, nah, that's not, that's not what I want to build my life on. That's the image that Peter gives us. The living stone rejected by men. 
And of course, you ask the question, why? And I actually don't think it's that puzzling. Partly because you look at Jesus and you think, wow, there's many reasons not to follow Jesus. His emphatic and absolute demands. Come and die. You know, we've been studying the gospel of Mark. Jesus is absolutely uncompromising when he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to come and die. You know, you've got to die to yourself so you can follow me. His, his exceptionally high view of what holiness is in the Christian life, what it means to be part of his kingdom, which we all look at and we're, we're baffled. What it, how could it be that he, he calls us to that life, a life that seems so unattainable? The fact that he calls you to an upside-down way of living in which, in which rather than being angry at the injustices around us, we're called to a path of meekness, of turning the other cheek. You know, all these reasons and many more, you can say, well, there's, there's a good reason not to follow Jesus. He doesn't seem to endorse the way I want to live. But the most important reason why we reject him is, of course, it's us, it's our hearts. And the fact that, you know, even if we're all builders, we're not all good builders. We're all building something. It just isn't necessarily the right thing. Last year, we had a builder in our home who, as some of you know, was not a good builder. And we subsequently had an electrician come in and check his work and say, this man should be in prison for what he did. We had a gas and a plumber come in with a gas guy and said, this guy, this guy is a criminal. Do you understand? This is criminal neglect. And uh, we, um, we, I had a cupboard fall off the wall onto my son. I, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it doesn't reflect well on me and C, does it? I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing to tell you this stuff. But the point is, we're not all competent builders. You just look at the results of our lives, of people's lives. We don't know how to build a life that works necessarily. So when the fact that people, you know, the stone the builders rejected, the fact that people reject Jesus, the fact that you get this choice and that many people say, no, that's not, that's not how I'm going to build my life. It doesn't surprise us, does it? But then Peter tells us, you, you can build upon Christ. God endorses him. He's a stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And to build on Christ is to essentially to believe in him and then every aspect of your being fall into line with that conviction of who he is and that his claims are true. This belief in him is experiential, it's intellectual, and it's volitional. It's experiential in the sense like this, where Peter says in verse 3, he says that we're to grow up in our salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. God isn't inviting you to build your life on Jesus without some intuitive gut level sense that Christ is better than everything else you've tried in life. And some of you need and have already been on a journey of searching the world and tasting other things. Sooner or later you'll discover that you're parched and there's a bitter taste in your mouth. But to come to Jesus is to experience a wholesome meal. To believe in him is an experiential thing. You've tasted that the Lord is good. It's also an intellectual thing that you become utterly persuaded. He is who he said he is. He is worthy of my absolute devotion and, and passion. Peter puts it like this. He says, whoever 
believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But it's also a volitional thing. In other words, you engage the will. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone. Which means that at one point in your life you chose, I'm going to build my life on Christ. But every day you wake up and you say, I choose Christ. I want to keep coming to him. I want my life to align with him. And friend, the reason why I'm stressing this first element, that you need to build your life upon Jesus, which I think is the obvious implication of the fact that God has made him the cornerstone, which sets the shape of the entire structure. And it has to be the first step. You say, well, what, what comes after the, putting the cornerstone in place? Well, the rest of the building comes next. And alignment with that cornerstone, which is the implication of what it means to be a Christian. But the result of this, when you choose Christ, is that you become part of this eternal structure that God is forming. As you come to him, a living stone, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Which means this, that when everything crumbles... Your life will not, because it's set in its right place, in alignment with Christ, in alignment with Jesus. That's essentially what it means to be a Christian. You build your life upon him. Now let me show you a second thing. Not only must you build your life upon Jesus, but your life then must become more like Jesus. And, you know, I stress this because I think this is a, a very important theme within this idea of what it means to be an exile community. What is the thing that defines us as exiles? And it's this. It's our difference. That, you know, you think about any exile community, any refugee community, they are noticeable because of their difference from the surrounding communities, right? Some of you are, are part of immigrant communities, and you know that personally, and you've, maybe I've seen, been to various parts of the world where there are refugee communities. And of course, they're noticeable by their difference. And what the Bible tells us is, listen, this is true of Christians more than anything. You're distinct. You're different. And I was saying to you a few weeks ago, and I think it's worth stressing, it's our difference that is the reason for friction in the world. If we were... If we had the same desires, dreams, ambitions, delights, passions, aims, purposes as the world in which we live, there would be no friction. We would just be flowing with the tide, with the current. It is because, it is precisely because we are different, that we are distinct, that you live a different life, that there is then this contradiction, this countercultural reality of your experience of what it means to be alive in this world as an exile. Peter, Pete, this is what motivated Peter to write this letter. This letter is full. As he, as, he, as he writes to these various churches dotted around Asia Minor, around Turkey area, the thing which was most pressing upon his mind, the thing which he was most burdened with, You didn't drop my son, did you? No, it's all good. It's all good, fine. Just the phone. You can drop the phone, just don't drop the boy, all right? That's fine. As as he wrote to these exile communities dotted around the place, Peter, the thing was upmost in his mind that keeps coming up all the way through the letter was his understanding that they were suffering because they were Christian. They'd been happy up to that point, getting on with their lives, And now they were experiencing the problem 
of being a Christian. Of following Jesus, of calling him Lord, of building their lives upon him. Because it created conflict all around them. Peter wanted them to understand why. You have to understand, you have to expect this, you have to get it. Or else you're going to be picked off. Why are we so different? And the answer is very easy to understand. It's because we follow the man who was the most distinct and different man who ever lived. Jesus is unique. His character, his purity, his teaching, his truth, his claims about himself. And the realities of what happened to him, his death and his resurrection, all of this makes him the most unique man who ever lived. And the reason why he was misunderstood, he was rejected, he was vilified, he was crucified. So you cannot follow Jesus in the true sense of what it means to follow him, which biblically means to walk in his steps. Become like him. You cannot follow Jesus without also experiencing this clash, this contradiction, this conflict with the world in which you live. It's impossible. And if you don't experience that conflict, you're not following Jesus. Painful as that might be. Jesus was really clear about this. He said, for example, in John 15... If I can just turn to the right passage. He says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. You know, he's the forerunner in everything, every part of our salvation, isn't he? He's the first one to be raised from the dead, but he's also the first one to be hated. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. If, in other words, if you just were living your ordinary lives and all these Christians that Peter was writing to had one day been like that, he'd be, he says you'll be fine. But Jesus says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's because you're exiles. Anywhere you go in the world, you find an exile or a refugee community, you'll find that they have experienced hatred and prejudice and disdain. This is true of Christians. And the reason is because we are like Jesus. Because we're being formed to become like our Savior. Now this is what Peter tells us here in this chapter when he says, As you come to him, a living stone. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. He uses the exact same expression because he's saying essentially, what Christ is, you are becoming. This is a common thing throughout the New Testament. Almost everything that it says about Jesus is also conferred upon us as God's people. Jesus is called the Son of God, and we are called sons of God. Jesus is called the light of the world, and we're called the light of the world. You can see this all the way through the pages of the New Testament because his image and likeness and being is imprinted upon his people, and he is growing up people to become like him. That's why he says, if they did this to the master, they'll do it to you also, because the more you become like me, the more you experience this friction of being an exile in the world. Which explains it, right? You think, ah, 
that's why. Now, how does this transformation happen? You know, has our lives become more like Jesus? And you've got to think of this both negatively and positively. The negative thing is this, of course, that we must turn away. We must continually be turning away from our sin. Friend, this is a message we cannot tire of thinking about. My life must be a life of constant repentance. And I want to say the same thing to you. That's why Peter says, look, the great, the great temptation that these Christians were wrestling with because of the friction they were experiencing in the world was, why don't we just blend in again? This is why he keeps reminding them through this letter, as he did in the last chapter. You know, those were the futile ways of your forefathers. And he opens this section saying, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In other words, that ugliness that, that exists all around us in the world and in the heart of man doesn't belong in you. You shouldn't have a malicious heart. You shouldn't have a lying spirit. You shouldn't be a hypocrite. Don't envy other people. Don't speak badly of other people. Because none of these things reflect the master that we serve. Think also of how we clo- this section closed, the last part we read, where he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You know, as Peter's envisioning this wonderful and beautiful structure, the temple of God being built, he's saying, listen, God's desire is that his church be exceptionally beautiful. I remember the first time I saw the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And somehow I'd managed to get to that point in my life. I was in my mid-twenties. And I'd never seen a picture of the thing, which is bizarre. Cause it's one of the most famous buildings in the world. And we came out of the, the underground station. My wife and I, this was before we had kids. And we came out. And I was like, the eyes were bursting out of my head. I was like, wow, this is extraordinary. This is amazing. And she was laughing, like, haven't you seen this before? I was like, no, this is amazing. What is this thing? I had no idea what we were coming to. But it literally like, it took my breath away. And there's a sense in which that's exactly what God wants his church to be like. That's the reaction he wants his people to elicit from the world in which we live. And of course, what, can, what damages that? Our sin does. We live lives of mixture, of pollution. It's like you can see the walls going up, but then there's a block there which just doesn't seem to belong. There's a sense in which, you know, one of the things that motivates us to keep repenting and to, to keep surrendering our lives to the Lord is because we want honor to be given to His name. And we know that, we know that if we if we live lives that are kind of bringing disrepute to him, it's like we're bringing an ugliness to the structure. There's a sense in which we've got to be negatively turning away from this mess. That's why Peter keeps reminding them throughout the letter in the way that he did just in this part. He says, I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Are there desires in you which everyone around you just gets on and indulges, which you must turn away from? Remember why. Remember who it's for. 
Remember what is compelling you to repent of those things. Abstain. But there's also, you know, much more than this negative thing of the repentance. And always in the New Testament, there's like a the negative aspect. Take this off. Take off this old person and put this new aspect of who you are on. Put on Christ, Paul tells us. And here, that positive thing he tells us is this. You know, as Christ is the living stone, you now are living stones. The life of Christ is flowing into you. This is unbelievably encouraging, friends. It means that God hasn't given up on us. You look at your life and you think, man, I wish I could change. Christ is changing you. That's the promise. That's his commitment. That's his faithfulness to you. His life is flowing to you. Of course, you must cooperate with that. I think about that verse early on. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. God is giving you, he's supplying you with everything you need in order to grow up to be more like Jesus. But you have to keep coming to him. You must desire him. You must, you must nurture a relationship with him in which you understand him more. You know him more deeply. You long for him more purely. And therefore you become more like him. In fact, in many ways, this is the aim of the Christian life, isn't it? To become like the master that we serve. It's what it means to be a disciple. And I think it's at the heart of what God is seeking to achieve in building this temple, this structure, this wonderful and beautiful thing, which is his church. You know, wherever we see the failings of the church is is surely because we fail at this point as individuals, isn't it? Now, let me bring you to the last point. Not only must you build your life on Christ and then become more like him, it's all leading and culminating in and driving towards this great vision that your life then must be poured out to Jesus in worship, in adoration, in sacrifice, in praise. And I think this is, this is the great beating heart of what it means to be the temple of God. It's about the glory of Jesus. This is so incredibly important, friends. It goes right to the heart of what we think we're here for, what our lives are about. You know, ask the question, what is the purpose of life? And I would say boldly that without Christ, life can have no ultimate purpose. It can have temporary purpose that that will then crumble. But the Christian understands something about what they're called to be and do, which, which continues on into eternity. And the heart of it is this. As Peter says here, your calling is to be a priest in service to and worship of the Son. You yourselves, he says, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is your calling. This is what we exist and live for. Now we need to dig into this and understand it. How, how can we understand our calling as priests? Now obviously, we, we recognize that it, it's about worship. To offer spiritual sacrifices, Peter says. 
But I think this is easily misunderstood in a couple of ways. One of them is if you narrow it down to just a few Christians, elite Christians, say they're the priests. You know, in some denominations, pastors or vicars or whatever are called priests. And I think that's incredibly unhelpful because it distinguishes some people above the rest as though there were certain people in the, in the flock of God who are priests and the rest, the rest are the hoi polloi, the kind of the commoners. And this is utterly foreign to the way the New Testament speaks. And you can misunderstand this if you think this is just the calling of some to dedicate their time to God in worship while everyone else gets on with normal life. That's absolutely not what the New Testament says. You could also limit it by thinking that, that this worship, this sacrifices, this, this giving acceptable sacrifices to God is just about your, you know, your sung worship or gathering with God, God's people on a Sunday or your quiet time if you want to talk about it in those terms. Terms which the Bible never uses, by the way. What I'm trying to, what I need to to get across to you, what is fundamental to this, is the all-encompassing reality of what it means to be a priest, how this touches every moment of every day in every aspect of your life. You never switch off from this. This is who you are. This is what your life is. It's an outpouring of sacrificial worship to God through Jesus as a priest. This settles. This sinks. It will change your mind about everything you do. From the most mundane things to the most exalted things. From the most routine things to the most exceptional things you do. It can change your understanding of everything you do when you see that All of your life is a priestly sacrifice of worship. Now, let me just help you understand this a little bit by understanding the background. When when the Bible tells us a story of God's plan, beginning with him calling one nation from among all the nations to be his people, which was the Jewish people, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And of course, you know, if you know your Bible background, that Among those people, there was a segment of the population who were devoted as Levites, and some of them were priests in the temple. But the interesting thing the Old Testament tells us is this, that actually the whole nation, in God's mind, were priests. In Exodus 19, uh, God says that if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all people. So he's saying of all the peoples on the face of the earth, you Israel will be my treasured possession, for all the earth is mine. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the implications of this are enormous. But what I think it underlines above all is this idea that God's plan and purpose are always a missional purpose. That the reason God set aside a people and called them priests was that God intended to re-inhabit the world with his presence and his glory through those people, which means that a priest is a missional calling. It was always about bringing God into everything through a distinctly called people. And of course, the story of the Bible is a story of Israel failing on a number of levels. They became too insular and inward-looking. In other words, they became so into their own national identity that the nations just could go to hell as far as they were concerned. And so they, they were never directed in the right way. 
They became idolatrous. You know, what's the point in a priest who is supposed to be a priest of the living God but actually worships other gods? And they became compromised. In fact, you know, so much so that their lives were indistinguishable from the nations among which they lived. If they were neighbors with the Moabites, they started living like the Moabites. If they were neighbors with the Ammonites, they started living like the Ammonites. And this is one of the great... If ever you've been done a Bible reading plan and read your Bible history and read through the Old Testament... One of the things that just depresses you on almost every page is the unbelievable failure of the people of God to be the people of God. And that's why it's written down for us. It's so brutally honest. It just says, look, this is hard. But God wasn't finished. God chose one man from among that people, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and raised him up to be the true Israelite, the great high priest, the one through whom God would complete and fulfill his mission on planet Earth. And then, miracle of miracles, the wonder, he also called us. This is the thing which Peter is marveling about later on in this section. When he says, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God or a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, you didn't belong in this group because you were in darkness. You were just a random bunch of people from all across the Roman Empire. And now you have this new identity, this new formation, this new understanding of what and who you are. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when God began his new plan, he started with the new foundation. He put Jesus in place, the cornerstone. Then he starts plucking individuals, peoples, families from all around the world, putting them into his structure so that you become living stones. And not just that, but you also become priests within his temple Friend, when this settles, everything in life changes. The Latin word for priest is pontifex, which can be translated bridge builder, which captures what it means to be a priest. A priest is someone who somehow mediates the presence of of a divine reality to a messed up world. And I think that captures what is the essence and the heartbeat of what this passage is about. The reason God is building a temple, the reason he has called you to be his priests, is because his presence is coming through you to fill the earth. This is his way. This is how he intends to fill the earth with his glory, through you and I. You think, how could, I, how could I possibly? This is what you are, friend. The New Testament does this to you again and again. It says, this is what you are, now live up to it. You're a son of God. Are you acting like one? <laughs> You're a child of the king. Now live that life. You're a priest. Don't you realize this touches everything you do? Which means that God intends for you to succeed where Israel failed. If they became insular and inward-looking and cut off from the world around them, this priesthood, the church, does not experience that 
cut off of the spiritual from the secular, but rather everything, the spiritual bleeds into everything you do, which means that every part of your life and everything is for God. You bring and mediate the presence of God into your workplace, into your families, into your into your leisure, into everything you do. There is no insular sense. Everything is mission. Everything is about the Spirit and what He's doing in and through you. If Israel became idolatrous, they found that their hearts were seduced to these foreign gods and they forgot the wonder of Yahweh. You cannot because you've been captivated with the Son. And having perceived the glory of Jesus... Having seen how great he is, the Christian is a person who can't worship lesser things, be it money or sex or power and success. None of these things is as important to you as he is. That's what makes you a priest. You know who you live for. You know the love of God in your heart. If Israel became compromised and found that their life was indistinguishable from the people among which they lived, you as a Christian, you know the way that you're called to walk. And knowing the way you walk in it. And even if you do it imperfectly and with frequent stumbling, the grace of God lifts off you condemnation and sin. And you keep going. You keep persevering. You know that Christ is blowing his spirit into your life. He's empowering you. He's saying, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm strengthening you, I'm changing you, I'm transforming you. You're my priest. So friends, when Peter says here, this is God's great vision, this is why we're on earth, this is what we, mean we are, this is who we are, this is what God is building in and through us. Your calling to be a worshiper does, of course, apply to the very narrow sense of what it means to be a worshiper with God's people on a Sunday or in prayer to God throughout the week. But it's much bigger than that. It's about God's intention to re-inhabit the world with his presence, that everyone would see the glory of his Son through us. I think that's why Peter ends this little section by saying, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, as God is building this structure, people will look on and be amazed. They'll be amazed at your life, how God's changed you, the Christ-likeness that's developing in you. They'll be amazed at his church. Seems hard to believe right now, doesn't it? That sometimes when you think how much the church has failed and how much we therefore are vilified and sometimes deservedly, God's not finished. I want to just mention to those of you who are not Christians, friends, I want you to really think about the first point that I said. It always begins with building your life upon Jesus. That is a confrontational claim and demand. It's something that deserves your strongest energies to think about, and to know, is he who he said he is? Can I build my life on him? Does he deserve my devotion? And I urge you, there, is, there cannot be wasted energy in exploring that question. But for most of us, 
You know and love the Lord. You're a believer. But have you grasped the depths and the breadth and the implications of what it means to be a priest of God? To live as an exile, yes, but to live with the dignity of this calling and of what God is accomplishing in and through you and how that can touch every part of your life. Everything you are and do matters because everything is a sacrifice of worship to the Son. Amen? We're going to take some moments to respond. It seems appropriate, doesn't it, as we let these truths settle. It seems appropriate to come in a fresh stance of devotion to the Lord. We want to give thanks for what he's done, that he's called us and given us the dignity of this calling. But we also want to say to God, Lord, I want to live up to the calling that you've placed upon me. You may see parts of your life you need to confess to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. But you may just want to pray, Spirit, empower me. I feel my weakness in living out this calling. Spirit, come and breathe on me in a fresh way to mediate your presence, to be a representative, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So let's bow our heads together. I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine in a couple of moments. Why don't you just remain seated for a few minutes as we just let this settle and brood, meditate on these realities and call upon God. Breathe upon us by your spirit. Empower us to these ends. This is what God wants to do. So we're not wrong in asking. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit will fall upon us. There's no greater tragedy than the church of God failing to live up to its great calling. But our prayer is that you will build in this city your church. Not just this congregation, but Lord, your church all across this city as something extraordinary. But Lord, we come to you humbly. We come to you in a posture of poverty of spirit. Say, Lord, we're hardly worthy of this. You know, we were in darkness. We were not a people. We had no mercy, but then you came, brought us into light. You gave us the dignity of being your people. You poured out your mercies upon us. Now fill us afresh with your spirit. As we, Lord, receive you, we pray breathe afresh on us for transformation, for effectiveness. That we become more like your son, more attractive to the world in which we live. Even as we're exiles in the world, we'd understand, Lord, you have a purpose. You have a secret mission that is at work in and through your people. You're going to change the world through this great structure you're building. Do it in us.